0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, Bringing Theology to Life. So Revelation 21, we are dealing now with the subject of the new heavens and the new earth. So this is well and truly the concluding portion of this book. We probably maybe have two more weeks, three more weeks maximum in this book. But this is also the concluding portion, not just of this book, but you could say of all history and prophecy of everything that we know. It is giving us that small glimpse into the future, into the wonders that await, the ultimate consummation of everything that has been promised to us in the scriptures, the eternal destiny of God and his people. And I say it is just a glimpse, just two chapters really, at the end of the book, because I'm not really sure, to be frank, that we could really comprehend any more than just two chapters of this. It is your sense as we read through this, there is a grasping but adequate language from the Apostle John here to try and describe what he is actually seeing, I believe. And really it is just held out as the ultimate conclusion to everything we read. But before we get to that, let me recap slightly where we got to just in the last chapter, because the chapter divisions, as we said, are put in by man for study purposes, but it does flow the context. So we saw in chapter 19, that glorious event where Christ returned at the end of history. He inaugurated his kingdom, removed those from his kingdom that should not be there. And he set up that period where he ruled for a thousand years on the earth. During that time, Satan was bound. He was unable to deceive the nations to cause people to do the things that he would want them to do. And we saw that the earth would prosper and flourish under the righteous rule of the King of Kings. And then after that, the text took us to the end of that period. Satan was released for that small period and again he was able to get a rebellion against him, but that was cut short very quickly and he was dealt with finally and forever thrown in to the second death that we talked about last time. The purpose for the current physical creation as we know it was now complete and we read just at the end of chapter 20 last week it said God removes the heaven and the earth. The physical cosmos are removed from the scene at this moment having served their purpose. You remember in the book of Genesis it said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and God said and God said the creative power of his word is what brought the heavens into existence. The sustaining power of his word is what sustained them every day since and with his word he will take them away just as easily at this time. And then we had that somber scene. Where the heaven and earth are removed and what was left was the great white throne of god and this was a scene that god does not want mankind to be part of yet many will be unfortunately it was a scene where all the unbelieving dead will stand before him and it says that judgment begun and the books were opened and these are the books of the deeds of things that have done every thought action word deed The idea is to prove once and for all that these people there is no covering available for them these are those who have not availed themselves of the free gift of salvation that god is offering to all men through all times there are many who choose to reject that but one day they will stand before the lord to give an account and it's a sad scene it's a scene that is supposed to shock us with its with what is actually transpiring and should motivate us to tell people about the gospel more and more this is a judgment those whose lives are basically testimony to the fact that they express the desire to live independently of God. This is the reality of this world. That earthly desire is now transformed into the eternal reality for them. And we understand this, like, I mean, you must think about it like this, people often complain at God, how could God, you know, he's gonna go to heaven, he was a nice guy. Heaven is about being with God. For those who do not want to live with God in this earth, Why would they want to live with God in the next reality? This is the thing, and this works on the other way too. But now we're moving past that period. All remnants and reminders of the past existence, the former things, it says, are now gone. The scene shifts to a place that is untouched or marred by sin, by death, by pain, by suffering. And it is really a place, like I said, that we have no way that we can really imagine. Everything we know is from this fallen world but we are given a glimpse, two chapters. And although it's only two chapters, they really are very important chapters. They are the fitting conclusion to everything that we read in the Bible. They are the end of all ends of the story of all stories, basically, is what we have here. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you'll know the last book is called The Last Battle. And on the very last page of the very last chapter, the very last words of that book, he finishes with this quote, He says all their life in this world and all their adventures in narnia had only been the cover and the title page and now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before i love that quote and if you've ever read my book on human identity you know i use that quote as the very last words in that book too i think it's just such a nice summation as we move in to speak of these things that we really can't comprehend in many ways. So let's continue in chapter 21. Like I said, we can't comprehend it, but we'll try and deal with what the scripture tells us about it. So let's look at verse one, please. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So remember, we said that the previous creation fled away, there was the great white throne judgment and now John gets a glimpse of the new creation. And then let's just deal with some myths for a moment here. Throughout the vast history of the church, when people speak of heaven, it's a very vague spiritual idea that they're referring to, kind of got this picture of of sort of disembodied souls wandering up into the beyond and floating around sort of mysteriously with not much understanding of what's going on. That is generally, they call that the spiritual vision model. And and due to the the dominance of Catholicism, that is why we have this. That is not what the Bible teaches. Okay, that is not really what man made humanity for. And therefore, It's not Biblical, I would say, and it actually demeans the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we saw after Jesus Christ was resurrected, although there were things about his body that we can't understand how it worked, he was still able to come and sit and eat with his apostles and do things that you would do in the physical creation. So the correct view, when we use the word heaven, we're not talking about the intermediate period, the ultimate end of believers. We are talking about what we call the new creation view. So it teaches that the ultimate destiny for the saints is an earthly embodied existence like Jesus Christ, superior to what we know in many ways, but with a measure of continuity. You can see almost, although broken and marred by sin, you can see a measure of the things that God ordained for his people in in this social development that he has with humanity. But this is more than that though. You think of the beauty of this world, even in its fallen state. The things that you can see the pictures the mountains the creation god is truly one of the best artists you've ever known everything else comes from that yet the world we're looking at here in revelation 21 is a world that has never been touched never been touched corrupted never groaning under the influence of sin and death it's a totally new created order far superior far better it's an earth which no longer smarts and smokes under the curse of sin It's an earth which needs no more to be torn with hooks and irons to make it yield its fruits. It's an earth where thorns and thistles no longer infest the ground, nor serpents hiss among the flowers, nor savage beasts lay in ambush to devour. It's an earth whose ground is never cut with graves, whose soil is never moistened with tears or saturated with human blood, whose atmosphere never gives wings to the seeds of plague and death, whose ways are never lined with funeral processions or blocked up with armed men on their way to war an earth whose hills ever flow with salvation, whose valleys know only the sweetness of Yahweh's smiles, an earth from end to end, from centre to the utmost verge, clothed with the eternal blessedness of paradise restored. This is what we're dealing with here. I have no way to really explain to you what this is like. We have these two chapters, that is it. John says, there is no longer any sea. It's an unusual little phrase in here. I've heard a lot of people complain, you know, I I like the beach. I'm not on board with that. I'm not sure that's what he's referring to. Now it may be, there is something about the ocean, as if you know, go back through the Bible story, we do learn that at one time in the history the world was flooded. We call it the flood of Noah. It's no coincidence that most of the world is still covered with water. It's kind of like staring you in the face there. Like I always find it amusing that they see a slight rock formation on Mars that might have indicated there was water on there one time and everyone's like, there's water on Mars. There was a flood at one point. The Earth's covered in water, but no one wants a global flood here. That's just how it is, just the way the world sees things. And the oceans do serve a kind of cosmic cleaning purpose for the physical creation that we have. They are the world's great cleanser of this world. So it may be something like that. However, in the context of Revelation, I think it's slightly different. Do you remember in the last chapter, where we had the sea mentioned again, it said the sea gave up their dead? And I talked about how in Jewish apocalyptic writings, the sea is often used to indicate the place of evil the place of dead, the abyss, as they called it. So it may be that he's simply saying in this new created order, there's no need for any of that. There's no need for a place to confine those who do evil or anything like that. That that era is gone. We're into a different thing. And that's probably more understanding of what the theme is we're getting here. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So now we get that first glimpse of the saint's future home. This is not the same as the restored Jerusalem, where Christ ruled on this earth during this kingdom. In a similar way that we read about the temple just being a replica of something we see in the heavenlies, in some ways the whole Jerusalem is just a replica of something that God has prepared in the heavenlies. This new Jerusalem will never play the harlot as the old one did. It'll never be trodden down by the enemy invaders that has been the history of Jerusalem in this earth. It will never suffer destruction and judgment. It will have no need for watchmen to sit on its walls, watching for danger approaching. This is the perfect city. It is the perfect social community, which has never been achieved on this earth. And actually, this is interesting. If you go through the history of religions and ideologies, both secular and religious, you'll notice that men is always searching for the ideal city. And they call it the utopian, the utopian vision. Many people have different utopian visions, whether it be communism or Nirvana or all these different places that they have. It's a goal, the end goal of their present activities. And on our, in our age, many people consider the end so valuable that it justifies any means to get there, even killing all those who would not really share your vision. We've seen that in history you know, within our century, within our very recent history. We've seen that many times. And I find this interesting. The word utopia, it's a conjugation of two Greek words, and it really means no place. It's a place that doesn't exist. It's a place that man dreams of in their fallen state. But the most important thing about it is that it cannot be achieved solely by human effort. This city is not a utopia that we're reading about here in the human sense. This place is the final reality, the difference being this city has a builder and foundation who is God. And that's the difference. Man cannot achieve this, although he has tried many times, it's always ended in bloodshed. When God does it, there will be no more bloodshed. Now, again, within the church, there are many who take a, a symbolic spiritual view of this portion of the text. They don't know how to deal with it because it's unusual, it's hard to deal with. It's purely a spiritual lesson. The Catholic church, they do this. They call the, the New Jerusalem is what they call the church triumphant in heaven. Us down here for them would be the church militant fighting to get to the New Jerusalem, you see. And this is why Catholicism often has that slightly more militant attitude on some of these things in history. Both of those are wrong. Joseph Smith, Mormonism, the founder of Mormonism, he tried to establish the New Jerusalem in Missouri for, the, for there to use, and you see how this goes. So it's much better, again, like we said, to take the text as written, take it as a literal future city, albeit with spiritual application and things we have trouble understanding because we have no way of knowing, really, this sort of a world but that's what it says. And it says it's made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And the passive form here of of those words is indicating that the bride has no part in the preparation at this point. The bride here is obviously the city, so this is symbolic to try and illustrate a point here. But this bride motif is something we see quite a lot through the scripture, and it's a beautiful idea that's being represented. And we still can understand this just with our, our knowledge of weddings today. You think of all the preparation, that the bride goes through. People come in to do the hair, the dress, the makeup. There's the whole team of people called bridesmaids who are there to just attend to every need, to make sure that everything is perfect. Everyone in the wedding is there to marvel at the bride, to say how beautiful, to acknowledge her beauty as she comes and walks down the aisle. And on that day, there's nothing vain or inappropriate about everyone just saying beautiful to that bride. In fact, it's rude not to acknowledge that on that day, isn't it? And that's the idea here. And then you you think of the scene that we still have in, in church weddings today. The aisle, the husband at one end, the bride, the entrance of the bride, they call it. It's a special moment. The husband turns and looks. And he's supposed to see that the most beautiful thing that he will ever see. And then they enter into that union of marriage together. This is the idea that's being presented here. It's the same idea John is saying as he turns now to see that eternal home coming down from heaven, coming down the aisle, as you could see, it's the most beautiful thing he could ever see the eternal home and abode of the saints. That's it, this is the future of the new Jerusalem. That's why this imagery is wonderful here. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So for the last of 20 times now we've had in this book, John hears a loud voice from heaven signifying something very important is about to be talked about. And this announcement may be the most important yet. They have saved the best to last. This verse, in fact, might be the most important one that you read. You could say it's the most important verse in the book of Revelation, maybe even the entire Bible in some ways in one context. It is the clearest expression of God's ultimate purpose and desire for mankind. People often want to know, particularly in an age of confusion like ours, what is the purpose of mankind? What are we here for? What should we be doing? This is really the goal that you were created for, the goal that God wishes for you. Everything you read about the entire flow of Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation, this final book, is moving us towards this picture, this final destiny. If you want to understand, or if you have trouble understanding what we're talking about with resurrections and the afterlife and all these different things, simplify it. This is your verse right here that will explain that to you. It is given first, notice this, before any descriptions about the glories of the the New Jerusalem, this part, this element, is held out as the preeminent part of our understanding of this next age. It says God's tabernacle is among men and he will dwell with them. That's God's desire for mankind. Tabernacle is is his lodging. His dwelling is now to be among his people. God has always wanted to dwell among his people. That's why he created them in the first place. This is the history that we find in fact going through the entire Bible. Go all the way back to Eden. He created that wonderful place for for the first people in his creation, that paradise environment. It says in Genesis three, verse eight, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And this is just after they had sinned, just after that brought that corruption and that separation from God into the world. But notice two things. It was usual for God to walk in the garden with man. That indicates the close fellowship, the union, God desiring to dwell among his people. And the fact that now they have sinned, they want to hide from God, indicates that something had changed now. They were separated from God, that intimacy was broken. That's the whole sin. The rest of the Bible is an explanation of how God gets us back to the place where he can dwell once again with his people, but there will never be the possibility of sin entering into the world again because it's been dealt with. The whole of the death, cross, resurrection, defeating death, all of that is to get us back to the place where God can once again dwell with his people. And that is really the history of our entire cosmos, what it is about, getting us back to this place. Do you remember when, in the days of the Exodus, Moses' time, he he said, I want you to build a tabernacle, which was this kind of tent of meeting, as he called it. Exodus 25, verse 8, he, he gave this instruction, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Even in the age where sin and death corrupted this earth, God still desired to have a dwelling amongst his people. But it wasn't as easy as it was in the garden because sin and death were there now. So he had to have all these places, and he had this little place called the Holy of Holies where he would dwell there. And people had to come through the priest and the sacrifice to get there. But the ultimate goal was the same, God's desire to dwell among man. This is really what the whole concept of a temple or a tabernacle has always been about. This is why Jesus, when he came to earth, Jesus coming to earth, it says that he came to earth and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. First it was the tabernacle, then it was the temple, and then he himself became the temple where he wanted to dwell among us. And then what's the temple after he left again? The church, that is the place where we have it. And think about what a temple is. This is, we need to understand this. A temple has always been understood in this context, anyway, in the ancient Near East, as a place where heaven meets earth. A place where God can dwell among his people. Even the pagan temples, they had that understanding, although it was completely corrupted in what they were doing. But the original was the idea that God said he wanted a place where he could dwell with his people. And it went through these different places. Ultimately, he came to the earth himself to do that. And then he left and he gave us the church. We are supposed to be that place now. That is the idea that we have here. Second Corinthians six, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them, walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, that's the idea of the church now. We're supposed to be the dwelling place of God. What God wants to accomplish on this earth, he does through his people. It's an unusual concept. We don't why would he choose such broken vessels as us? Well, one day when sin and death are removed, we won't be broken vessels anymore. We'll be glorified like the Lord. That's part of our inheritance. But for now, we do suffer from this. But here in the New Age, what we're reading about, the age where sin and death are past, we see the meeting place of God and man is no longer confined to one small temple, one small holy of holies. There's no longer a sacrifice and a priest that you have to go through to get there. Here we see the home, the dwelling place of God is described as being an entire city, The new Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies, the whole place where everyone lives and God dwells with his people together, where both he and his people live in unhindered union and fellowship with one another. This is the essence of heaven. This is what we mean when we're talking about heaven, and it is held out as the ultimate future of the believer. And the reverse of that gives you a good understanding of what we call hell would be too. The idea is it is a complete lack of being in in the presence of God. But it is only this that leads to the promise of the next verse in verse 4. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. All things existed. While every other temple, when the tabernacle was here, when King David and Solomon's temple were here, when Jesus Christ was here, when the churches on this earth, they all existed in an age where sin and death reign. Death is natural, you could say, to the world at this point. And we see everything that comes from that. But in the New Jerusalem here, they are no more. Every tear is gone. That means everything from the old order, it says, is removed. There is no death. We, we saw at just the end of the last chapter, death itself was thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is gone. That period of history is over. Death is a corruption. It's an enemy. If you've ever been to the funeral, particularly of someone who shouldn't have died so young, if we use that expression, and you see the grief, you see the, the understanding that this is wrong, this shouldn't have happened, this is unfair, If you don't believe in God, you have no reason to say this is unfair. That's just life doing life, basically. But yes, we do say that that is unfair. Death is given as to be. It's a corruption in this world. It's an enemy and Christ has defeated it. And in the end of the last chapter, we saw it once and for all gone. And this is why he can make this promise now in the new era. There is no separation between God and his people and there never will be again. And that is what death really is, a separation between people and God. But it says there's no more mourning, there's no crying, there's no pain. These are all the things that are associated with death and with a body that is dying, a body that is aging and decaying as it goes on. These are all things that are common to this era, but they will not be in the next era. There's no more churches with graveyards around them, no more cemeteries, no more tombstones, no more monuments to those whose lives have been lost in war. There's no funerals, no bereavements, no obituaries, no daily news cycle of things that confront us with our own mortality and evil. There's no death, only life eternal. No mourning, only joy, no crying, only happiness, no pain, only delight. That is the new Jerusalem. And then it says, the first things have passed away. All of those things belong to the old order, which have fled away at this point. And all of these things now belong to the new order, this new created order, the new heavens and the new new Jerusalem. Amen. Verse five, and he sits on the throne, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write, for these words are faithful and true. So now we're ready for the next statement that comes from the midst of the throne. A few times we've seen these words come from the midst of the throne, God's throne, and it starts with that word, behold, which remember we said was pay attention. Whenever you see that in Revelation, we need to pay attention. God is about to make a dramatic statement. He says he is making all things new. And this basically saying that what he has created here will surpass anything we could possibly imagine because all of our experiential knowledge is marred by this world that we know, which is covered in sin and death. Reminds me very much of 1 Corinthians. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those that love him. The grand scope of redemption It's more than just individual salvation, which is the way we often think about it, get them saved, that's wonderful, but it's more than that. It's so complete and comprehensive that it actually encapsulates the entire cosmos, not only the old, but also the new. It moves us into that era, the spiritual and the physical realms. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. And we almost have an interlude here now. John's just been given this amazing vision. He doesn't quite know what to do with it. And then we have kind of a weird statement, write for these words are faithful and true. Now you get the impression John had maybe stopped writing at this point because he was so amazed with what he was seeing. And he's told again, you need to write this. It's almost like a recognition that what he's seen is too wonderful really to explain or to believe that we kind of need a truth disclaimer with it. The Lord almost seems to say, you need to write that this is true afterwards. It sounds too good to be true, but it is actually true, what I'm talking about now. This is what he has here. These words are faithful and true. And this reminds us also, although we're talking about things in the future that might sound distant to us, John wrote this book in the first century, remember? He wrote this promise for the church of that age and for every age since, right up us and maybe beyond, to understand and take blessing from it. That all of the toil, everything that we see and experience now, will one day be made new like the new heavens and the new earth. It's a reminder that all the promises of God are faithful and true. You remember that in this book, Jesus Christ also referred to himself as the faithful and true witness. And he is the one that thus can confirm that the words of God are in fact faithful and true. And really, he's the only one that can do that. And you don't need anyone else to do that. And it also means that any mind of man on this earth that questions that is really laughably, you can see why it says the Lord sits in the heavens and scoffs at those people. This is the word of God. Let's have a look at verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost and he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So now we see the voice turns to speak to John, almost like he's recorded the vision, and John is here now, and he's speaking to John, and he says, it is done. And this is in the perfect tense, it's it's kind of like saying, it has become, it is finished, I've done my creation now. And it's emphasizing the completion of the task, the creation of the new order. Now we've seen this phrase before, haven't we, in Revelation? Do you remember? We saw the phrase, it is done, a little while back. And we we said a very similar phrase was what Jesus said when he was on the cross. He said, it is finished when he was on the cross, referring to his atonement for sin, that he had now taken our guilt on his body. He had died, he had died the death that we all deserve. It is finished, he said. And then a few chapters back in Revelation, as that final outpouring of wrath, the seven bowls of God, the last outpouring of wrath, he said, it is done. But now we have another one, it is done. So the first one was wonderful, the second one was kind of terrifying, and the third one now, again, is wonderful. And you need to make sure you accept the right ones. If you accept the it is finished, you jump straight to this one here, it is done, the new heavens and the new earth. If you don't accept the it is finished, the chances are you'll get the middle one. It is done, the bowls of wrath of God. That's the one, the very one he doesn't want you to actually have. That's what we have here. The title used, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's a title we've seen often in this book. It emphasizes that he is the eternal God. It's used of both the Father and the Son because the Father and Son are one in essence in that sense. Only an eternal God can create and sustain an eternal creation. You see, you understand that. This is why when we say eternal life, this is the concept that we're talking of. All life that comes from God is eternal. That is the very essence of life. It's only the sin that caused it to be slightly different in that sense, but we're moving past that era here. He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Without cost. It's free, the gift of God's salvation. And when we've read everything we've read in Revelation, you might wonder if all this is true and it is given freely why is it that men reject it so vehemently why is it that men refuse to accept it refuse to come to god and that's the deception and the power of sin in this world i will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost and we see this final expression here of a theme that runs throughout the entire bible we call it the water of life and you've even seen that in popular culture The elixir of life you know people scouring the earth for this potion that will give them life they've misunderstood the concept here the idea is jesus is the water of life he even calls himself the water of life isaiah in his day spoke of the wells of salvation jeremiah called the lord the fountain of living waters jesus said that he will give you but john 4 but whoever drinks of the water that i will give him shall never thirst but that water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life." It's a a way of describing salvation, of what happens to you when you become a believer. In the kingdom age, we'll see that the temple has rivers flowing from it. And again here in this age, Jesus reminds us that he has given all access to this living water. The gospel is the most inclusive thing ever. Now truth is exclusive, but the gospel is given to all without hindrance. It's given freely to all because God has accomplished it. He earned that right to give it freely. People do reject it, unfortunately. But the idea of water is a nice, we understand, just in a physical sense. When you're thirsty, you need water, don't you? You've ever had, yeah? I'm dehydrated, I need, and you just glug a glass of water. The idea is it satisfies you, it fills your need. This is the concept of man was made to be in relationship with God. If you're not in relationship with God, you're always going to have that slight thirst. This is the idea. The gospel draws you near, the spirit draws you to God. That quickening, that feeling that you get when you know, is this real? And you get that slight nervous, I need to look into this. That's the spirit drawing you, the way to satisfy and to come into the full understanding of what it means to be human is to drink from the waters of living water. And then all of this stuff that we're reading about becomes yours and it's quite an amazing thing. All of these wonderful things, the water of life, the home in the new Jerusalem, in that new order, where all of those old things have passed away, the inheritance of the saints are given to those who overcome. Let's look at verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers and immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their part will be in the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, which is the second death. We dealt with that last time. And this is a final warning. Remember, this book was written in the first century for every generation of people since. All of those wonderful things that we've looked at in this thing, they are the inheritance given freely to those who would overcome. Now, what does it mean to overcome? Hopefully, by this point in Revelation, you're, you're expected to understand that. It is for those who have believed in Jesus, quite simply. Those who have asked for forgiveness repented given their lives to him accepted his death burial and resurrection and accept him as their lord too every remember revelation chapters two and three the letters that jesus wrote to the churches all those promises he gave were to the overcomers those who have believed and it's not because we're great and we overcome by it's because of jesus is the true overcomer when we become a christian it says we become part of him in him part of his body he's the one who overcomes He's the one who gets us into the new heaven. Nothing we do that adds to that. It's all about him, which is really why all of us come here. When we're sitting here singing these songs, worshiping the Lord, it's because ultimately someday we know what we're doing now, even though we see dimly, one day we'll be ultimately fully consummated in the full union that we can have with our creator in the new heavens and new earth. This is ultimately what we're all leading to here. 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. What is that inheritance? Everything we've just read in the beginning of this chapter in Revelation 21, that ultimate future that we have. But notice again in the text, chapter seven, verse seven, of Revelation 21 what's held out it's not the wonderful city as we're going to we do see more of that in the next few chapters the all the different ways that is beautiful what is the ultimate element of our inheritance that is held out for us as being the thing that we should focus on it says I will be his God and he will be my son it's that relationship that we have with God. The intimacy with God is the real inheritance. That is the ultimate blessing of the future age. It's that desire that has been right since Genesis chapter 3 that God would dwell with his people and there would be nothing, no sin, no death, no corruption that would hinder that fellowship. That is the ultimate consummation of Paul's words. In Romans 8, 14 he says, For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father." The spirit of adoption, the very concept that we would be adopted into God's family and have that union with him, that is the fullest blessing in the inheritance. That is what the New Jerusalem is all about. And then finally, to the reader, we have that, again, rather scary verse in many ways, not everyone's going to be there. Although God has made it available for everyone, he's begged everyone for the last 4,000 years, 2,000 years since the gospel, since Jesus Christ, to make sure that they are going to be there, there are still those that refuse. And it gives you a list of people here, the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the abominable. And these are basically different people. These are those who are too afraid to lose the world to gain Christ. When Jesus says you must you know, count the cost, you take up your cross, you deny yourself. This is hard in this age to do. There are things that the world offers that many people want, and they place those things above everything that Christ has offered in the future. And he said to them, the ultimate destiny is to stand before the great white throne. Paul says, I beg you, don't go there. Be reconciled to Christ. Make sure that your ultimate destiny is in the New Jerusalem. But yet there are those who don't. The unbelieving, this is those who stubbornly will not believe. Now, many of us were like that at one point, weren't we? Stubbornly not believing. That's part of many of our stories. But through the prayer of the saints, through the drawing of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, he breaks down our hearts until we're at that point where we do see the truth and we accept Jesus. That can still happen. That's why we continue to pray for those who don't know. That's why we continue to preach the gospel. And then it goes on the abominable. Now, you can't deny this is a true category. Read the news every day. You know Things that go on in this world that are absolutely sickening These are the people whose consciences are so seared by the deeds of darkness that they love the darkness, they don't want to come into the light. These are the people that will end up in that same place where Satan was thrown, because they cannot be in the new heavens and the new earth, because the new heavens and the new earth is a place where those things do not exist. And this is the idea that we have here. And what, as we contemplate these things, should be our response. It's quite simply, again, as we've emphasized for the last few chapters, the response should be to make sure that we are born again that our names are in the Lamb's book of life, that we will never come under the judgment of God. We are safe. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God, or our lives are hidden in Christ, rather. And therefore, we come to him in the name of Jesus Christ. And because of that name, everything that name accomplished, everything he did, we are found worthy not because of us, but because of him. And therefore, we will be with him in this future. We will be an overcomer through our faith in Jesus Christ. We will be adopted sons and daughters of God and our future and our inheritance will be to live in that relationship where God dwells with us and we walk with him in that intimate way for life eternal. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash apologetics If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.